Oh, yeah. I'm so excited to get to speak to you all this morning. I'm wondering if there's anyone in church this morning that would agree with me that it really depends on who asks and what they're asking to borrow that determines whether or not you lend it to them. It matters, doesn't it? Some things are easy. Some things we don't mind lending out. Well, other things are more difficult. If I ask you, could I borrow a good book? Well, that's easy. But what if I was to ask you, can I borrow your toothbrush? That's a little bit different. And it's disgusting. I was at youth camp and I heard this question. Can I borrow your toothbrush? I said, first of all, that is gross. And second of all, Josh, I told you to bring your own toothbrush. And you're nasty. No, you cannot have my toothbrush. Can I borrow some tiki torches for my luau? Absolutely. Hey, could I grab the Wi-Fi password to look something up? You bet. Can I borrow your Disney login to watch Mandalorian? We know who you are. Uh-huh. We know who you are. Some things are easy, and some things are a little bit tougher. Can I borrow your shop to store something? Can I borrow your gun to hunt something? Can I borrow your truck? <laughs> I just heard somebody say, nope. Can I borrow your truck to move something? Now, listen. I've been in our parking lot, and I've seen the pickup trucks at Faith Baptist Church. First of all, we have lost our minds. We have more trucks than we have members. I don't know how that is possible, but it's possible. But I've been out in the parking lot, and I've seen your little sissy four-wheel drive pickup trucks, new, nice. It starts. And quite frankly, I am not impressed. You know why? Because I can't borrow it. But I want to show you a real beauty. It's my beauty. I call her the dirty bubble. Drink it in. Drink it in. My two-tone paint job. Come on now, that's custom work. That's from the good old sunshine for the last 20 years. 141,000 miles starts most of the time. <laughs> and here's the good news, church, and I mean it. If you want to borrow my truck, you can. Because it doesn't matter if it gets scratched, dented, wrecked. It really doesn't matter. The only thing that I ask Man, that angle is, whew. That's like us when we take a picture and it's the wrong angle. She looks a lot meaner than that in person. But you can borrow it. It's fine. Because it doesn't, it doesn't really mean that much to me. I, we borrow things all the time. If you're here, if you're a little bit older, you'll know what I'm talking about. The newer generation doesn't get this. But my mom, hi, Becky, there you go. I pick on you. And Chetto, good Lord, you know you're old. Um, my mom used to send me down the street to borrow a cup of milk, a cup of flour, a cup of sugar, and she never made a cake. 
I don't know what we were borrowing. That's what we did in the neighborhood. We borrowed stuff all the time, constantly. From tools to time, from food to formal wear, we tend to borrow things. Now listen, you don't need to buy an extension ladder, a rototiller, a chainsaw, wedding decor, extra tables, extra chairs, church, just borrow them from the sucker who bought it all. Yes, you know who you are. There's some people in this room, you buy everything. You don't just have a two-car garage, you have a shop on top of it to store all of your stuff. And we love you, because no matter what we need, you have it, all of it, and I love it. Now, we have that friend in our lives, you know who you are, and you may be that person. You're really careful what you lend to them, because there's a great chance you will never see it again. You know who they are, don't you? You know when you lend that thing to them, it is never coming back. There is not a chance. And so you are very careful what you lend to them. And if this fall season, you happen to be in the garage and you see that leaf blower with the 1,500 horsepower motor, yeah, you're the friend who never returns anything. How many times have you looked at something and thought, where did that come from? That's you. You're the person. I know I've done that. I borrowed things, forgot to return them, and thought to myself, where in the world did that come from? And then we have the friend, obviously, who has everything. I mean, you walk into their place and you just think, you just want to ask random stuff. Like, do you have a unicorn head just floating around for a Halloween party? They're like, you know, funny thing you ask. I have one of those. What a shocker. The staple gun that shoots 300 yards. I've got one of those. You got it all. And we appreciate that. And, and we love that. Now, if you're a person who doesn't like to borrow and rather buy because you just want it on hand just in case, we respect that. And we get that. And if you're here and you're a person that doesn't like to buy, buy everything, but every once in a while borrow something because you're not going to be needing it very long, we respect that. And I would like to remind you this morning that Jesus borrowed some things while he, he was here on this earth, which is interesting to me. He borrowed some things. He borrowed them even though he created them. He asked for them even though he owned it all. But in his earthly ministry, Jesus borrowed some things. In Luke chapter 5, he borrowed Peter's boat. He said, Peter, I need your boat. I'm, I'm going to stand on the boat and I'm going to push out from shore just a little ways and I'm going to use the water as a sound system and I'm going to preach. And when he got done, he told Peter, he said, let down your nets. They had been fishing all night. And he said, oh, Jesus we, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. We've already washed the nets. We've rolled them up. This takes time. Jesus says, throw out your nets. They throw out one net. Jesus borrows a boat, but he leaves a blessing for Peter that Peter literally cannot haul in. He caught so many fish. He had to call his friends because the net was breaking. And so Jesus borrowed a boat. In John chapter 6, he borrows a boy's sack lunch. And he took a sack lunch, five loaves and two fishes. 
and he fed thousands. And although he took that boy's sack lunch, he left the boy a legacy. From that day till now, everyone's talking about the little boy with, with just a few loaves of bread and just a, a few fish that lent it to Jesus. And Jesus borrowed this and did the unthinkable. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus wanted to borrow a donkey. He said, go find it, it's tied up. And the colt would carry a king, which is unbelievable. See, in that day and time, if you rode in on a horse, it meant you were coming for war. But if you rode in on a donkey, it meant that you were bringing peace. And he would bring peace. He was the prince of peace. And through his sacrifice, through his gift, through his love, he could bring peace to the world. But he borrowed a donkey, even though he created it. And in John chapter 13, think with me, he borrows an upper room. And there he institutes communion, the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine the person who owned that upper room? The fact that after that, they probably never, ever shut up about what that room was used for. Could you imagine being their friend and going to their house? And that friend's like, hey, have you seen my upper room? Yes, we've seen it. You know who was up there? Yes, we've heard it a thousand times. The Lamb of God. Jesus, the spotless one who took away the sins of the world, he had the first communion in my bonus room. We know! And so he borrows an upper room and he leaves them bragging rights forever, which is unbelievable. I would like to talk with you for a few minutes this morning on the subject of a king without a coin. The king without a coin. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter number 22. Whether it's your digital Bible, whether it's your paper Bible, whatever it might be, Matthew chapter 22. And if you're freaking out right now and you think, oh, I didn't bring anything, it's okay. We're going to have it up on the screen. We're going to walk through some verses together. And then when we're done, I just want to ask you one question. One question for you and I to consider before we go our separate ways this morning. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, the Bible records these words for us in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Now, this happened constantly. Jesus would be teaching, and they would get together, and they would plot, and they would scheme, and they would think, how can we trip him up? How can we use his words against him? The word entangle is a hunting term. They're trying to trap him like an animal. And you know, as well as I know, that it's not going to work very well. They're trying to hang him on the horns of a dilemma. They're going to pose a question to him that he can only answer one of two ways, and regardless of how he answers, they got him. It's foolproof. This was the day they would finally get Jesus. So here we are, verse number 16. The scripture goes on to say, and they sent him 
their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the ways of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone. That's a respective person. They're going, you don't care how much money they make. You don't care what they look like or their status. You're not interested in that. For you do not regard the person of men. You don't show any favoritism. So here they show up with their disciples and the Herodians. Now, the Herodians you're only going to find a few times in the Bible, just a couple of times. It was a political party very partial to Herod. They didn't get along with the Pharisees at all. But in this situation, they wanted to go across the aisle and join hands, if you would, because they wanted to work together to defeat their most hated enemy, Jesus. And so they plot together. The disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they roll in and they're trying to set him up. And the way they do that is they're trying to butter him up, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. They're flattering him, but he knows immediately their words are an absolute joke. Verse 17. Verse 17, tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? There's the question. There is the setup. Now listen, I want you to track with me. I want you to capture this because it's so important to get this. They're trying to get him to say something against Caesar. You have the Pharisees and you have the Herodians. This is a supercharged setup. And they're asking them and him specifically about the poll tax. Now, like us, they got taxed for everything. Income, food, wine, oil, everything was taxable. I mean everything. But in this situation, what they're asking him about is the poll tax. It's a once a year tax. If you were a woman, a girl, it was between the ages of 12 and 65. If you were a guy, you had to be between the ages of 14 and 65. And if you fell within those ages, if you were part of that society, you paid the poll tax. One denarius. One denarius. So that's the tax that they're talking about. And they're saying, hey, is it lawful to pay this tax or not? The problem for Jesus, of course, is that the question had been carefully crafted to where he could only answer yes or no. Their purpose in doing this was to limit Jesus' options so no matter what he says, whether he says yes or whether he says no, they got him. If he says, yes, it's lawful to pay the tax, then they go, aha, you're not loyal to the Jewish people. You're, you're, you're not uh, in support of your very own. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, then they got him on treason because now he's against the Roman government. And they're like, yes, you spoke against the Roman government. They could lock him up for treason and they could execute him. So either way, it's a no-win situation. Do we pay tax to Caesar or not? It is a brilliant question. Either way, Jesus loses and the enemy wins. Contraire, mo frere. It doesn't end that way. Oh, I like this. Verse number 18, let's continue. 
In verse number 18, the Bible says, but Jesus perceived their wickedness. You think? And he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? He said, I know what you're doing. He calls them hypocrites. And the word, many of you know this, but the word that he's using is is a word that was derived from where we get to act, to play, to be in theater or to be on the stage. The word that he uses, hypocrites, is one who wears a mask and pretends to be something that they're not. And when he said, you guys are hypocrites, what he's saying is, you've got this mask on, you're appearing to care, you're appearing to be religious, but you know, and I know, that you have the mask on, and you're just playing a game, you're a hypocrite. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like me sometimes. I put a mask on and pretend to be something I'm not. I put a mask on pretending to care. I put a mask on pretending to love. I put a mask on pretending to have compassion. But the truth is, is I'm just playing a game. I'm a hypocrite. How about you? You ever put a mask on? Yes, ma'am, I know. Preach that. Hypocrites. Verse 19. Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Show me the money. (laughs) I would love if Jesus said that. Show me the money. They said, I need to see the money. And they scurry about. They're like, oh, we got the money. We're going to get you the money. And so they bring him a denarius. And the denarius, that's what it looks like behind me. It represented a day's wage. If you would, depending on where you live, but let's say here in America, if you, you're, you're at Wendy's and you work, you know, eight hours and you make, you know, whatever, 12, 13 bucks an hour, whatever it may be, you know, it's about 100 bucks a day. So it's not a lot of money, but it's not a little bit of money. There's some consequence to it. It's a chunk. It's not a lot, but I don't know about you, 100 bucks is 100 bucks, right? $100 is $100. And so he says, show me the money. I want to see the money. And then in verse number 20, he asks the question. In verse 20, he says, whose image, whose image is on the coin? And whose inscription is this? In verse 20, whose image is on the coin? And, and, and I love this. I want you to track with me just for a second. The king, the king, borrowed a coin with the image of another king that he created in his own image. Can you imagine this? You're in this setting, and the king of kings says, I need to see the coin. And whose image is on it? Knowing That the coin that he's borrowing and the image that he is looking at, he created the very image in his own image. And so he says, I need to see the coin. And so they show him the coin and he asks the question. And then in verse 21, he says, "Then then he said to them, they're wanting an answer. They said to him, it's Caesar's image. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things 
better God. Now, I just want you to think just for a moment with me. Because on the surface, it seems very simple. On the surface, you would go, oh, this is, this is simple. I mean, it, it makes sense. He goes, hey, whose image is on it? Whose inscription? They said Caesar. He said, fine. Then if his image is on it, then give to Caesar what is Caesar. And give to God what is God's. But is there more than that? His answer shocks them. It leaves them speechless. Because look at, we'll come back to this, but look at verse number 22. In verse number 22, it says, Then they heard these words. When they heard these words, they marveled and left them and and went their ways. They were shocked. This was supposed to be a foolproof plan, but Jesus doesn't take the bait. So they said, hey, should should we pay taxes or not? And he said, show me a coin, and they showed him a coin, and he says, whose image is on the coin? And they said, it's Caesar. He says, great, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Give the things the things that are God. But their question represents the best efforts, the best minds. This is a foolproof plan. They finally got them right where they want them, and the whole thing blows up in their face. And the Bible says they walked away shocked and dumbfounded. They tuck their tails. They go away to lick their wounds to live to fight another day because it was the same story. It was just a different day. What did he say, church? What did he say that blew their minds? What did he say? That shocked them. What did he say that left them in a position where they just thought, we just have to walk away because the debate is over? What happened? Did he just cleverly dodge the dilemma? Or was there something more to his answer? The answer lies within verse 20. When he asked them, whose image is on the coin? The moment he does this, the debate was over, and they knew it. Stay with me. Whose image is on the coin? You see, they were good Jews. They knew their Bibles. They knew their Torah. They knew the law. They knew the scriptures better than you and I could possibly ever know them. Most of them memorized it before they were age 13. The entire book of the law, five books of the Bible, they knew it, front and back. And the moment he said, whose image is on that coin, they knew the argument was over, and here's why. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The Bible says, so God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So in the very beginning, God created man and woman, and he created them in his image. They knew that passage perfectly. And so here is where he gets them. What he was telling them was that as Caesar has stamped the coin and declared it his own, so too has God stamped you in his image and called you his own. So the moment he said whose image is on the coin, they knew immediately 
what Jesus was telling them. As this coin was stamped in the image of Caesar and belongs to him, every single person has been stamped with the image of God, and we belong to him. They belonged to him. Everything belonged to him, including Caesar and the money and the tax and all of creation. And so they knew and understood immediately that when Jesus says, whose image is on the coin, and they said Caesar's, he said, fine, give the things that are Caesar, that's great, but give the things to God that are God's. And the moment they heard it, they went, that's us. That's us. We're made in the image of God. We are his image bearers. And the argument was over because they knew they had not given themselves to God. And Jesus had asked the one question that they could not answer. They would not answer. So they tucked their tail and they walked away. We have been stamped in the image of God. We bear his image. And because of that, everything that is and everything that was and everything that will be belongs to God. The king without a coin. The king without a coin. The king of kings borrows a coin. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. But he didn't have pocket change. Are you kidding me? Psalm 24, 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. Everything that we see belongs to God, all of it, every single bit of it. It was all his, always was and always will be, yet he humbled himself. How much so? That he borrowed things, and not only did he borrow things, but Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the Bible says that he made himself of no reputation. He took on him the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. Can you believe that? And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Church. I want, you to, I want you to get this if you get nothing else. He gave it all so that we could have it all. He bailed on his throne so that he could be born in a trough. Are you kidding me? He laid down his robe to wear rags. He died that we might live. He suffered so that we might be saved. The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head. Why? So that you and I could have a home in heaven. The king without a coin left it all for us. We can never forget that. In closing, the king without a coin borrowed a few things. He borrowed a boat. He borrowed a sack lunch. He borrowed a donkey. He borrowed an upper room and something else. He borrowed a tomb. And he borrowed it because he would just be needing it for a few days. He wouldn't need it long. Joseph gave it to him. His friend Joseph said, you can have the tomb. And Jesus said, thank you, but I'm just going to be staying a few nights. And when he got done, he wrapped up and folded his grave claws nice and neat and left them on the bedside. The king without a coin 
left a tomb empty. And the empty tomb is a testimony that God can take anything, anything, and make it better than what he found it. And that's what Jesus does. It's a testimony to the power of God that he takes what seems hopeless and he breathes life into it. Doesn't he leave things better than what he finds them? Let me ask you this way, church. How did he find you and me? Broken? Hopeless? Dead. In our trespasses and in our sins. And Jesus steps into our mess. And he does what only Jesus can do. He rearranges it. He fixes it. And he makes it brand new. So my question this morning is this. If you and I have been stamped in his image, and if you and I belong to him, and we do, what is it that Jesus is wanting from us? He wanted a boat, a lunch, a donkey, a room, a tomb. But what is it this morning that Jesus wants to borrow from you? What will we give to the king without a coin? What is it specifically that Jesus is asking from us? Now, don't miss this. I have a feeling you already know. Because I believe that God has been speaking, not just in the last few moments, but for days, weeks, months, and years, saying, hey, this is what I want. This is what I want from you. What does he want from you? Oh, he definitely wants you. Oh, he wants you. But what else does he want? Your home? Your heart? Your hurts? Your marriage? Your relationship? Your fears? your addictions, your business, your burdens, your pride, your pain, your grief, your anxiety, all of those things Jesus wants. Your victories, your successes, your sin, and how about the corners of your life that nobody knows about? You know them and you know them well because they haunt you every single day. You can't get away from them. And they hunt you down like an animal. And every day they called you and they whisper to you. And I'm telling you, the king without a coin wants those things too. Because you and I know very, very well that we can't fix it. We can't do it. 
We can't make it well. We can't make us well. But the king without a coin can. And so what does he want from you? What can he take from you and do what he does? I would like for the next few moments for your chair to be your altar. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to give us a few moments to ask the king without a coin, okay, Jesus, what is it that you want from me? I firmly believe that you already know what it is. So the question this morning is this. Not what does he want, but what are you waiting for? And when will you finally say, yes, Jesus, you can have it because I can't hold it anymore. It's killing me. So take a few moments and right where you're at, would you give the king without a coin what he's asking you for?